Please open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. I will be starting at verse 18, and I will read until the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. Well, I'd like to um, 
Just say, first of all, greetings from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. And how many of you know where Minden is? Oh, good. Most of the time when I go somewhere else, I'll say, do you know where Minden is? And nobody knows. And so then I say, well, do you know where the Cartwrights lived? And um, so we're not too far from there. So... Anyway, I'm really happy to have my wife with me, Ariel. She doesn't often get to travel with me, but she's with me this time, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, Let me just tell you just a little bit. Um, We moved from Portland, Oregon in 1993 to the Carson Valley and started Grace Community Church in 1993. So we're entering our 29th year as a church. And uh, God has really been uh, exceptionally kind to us. And also, let me just say that, uh, that your pastor is a, is a dear friend, and uh, he is uh, just a wonderfully encouraging brother, and I appreciate, uh, appreciate Steve very, very much. Well, let's ask uh, the Lord's uh, blessing on our, our time together. Father, you are the searcher of hearts. And we pray that you would take your word and apply it in ways that we could never have planned. We pray that you would do 10,000 things, Lord, uh, among us today, all for your glory and for our good. And so we pray that your word would, would go forth in the power of your spirit this morning. And Father, we do pray for... For every place that calls upon the name of your Son, we pray that your word would be mighty and you would accomplish your purposes today. In Jesus' blessed name, amen. So I appreciate uh, the reading of the entire uh, section. It was really, really wonderful. Our, Our sermon text itself is 35 through 37, so if I can just reread that to you. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The the Haim family was a Christian family that lived in Cambodia. And in 1975, after so-called liberation came, Haim knew that he and his family's days were numbered because the Khmer Rouge had come to power. And Haim and his family actually were uh, captured by the Khmer Rouge and they were tied up and they spent uh, the night bound and in prayer. The next day... Each of the family members were given a shovel and they dug their own graves. Their crime? Loving Jesus Christ. After they had dug their graves, one of the teenage sons of Haim in panic took off and one of the Khmer Rouge soldiers who himself was just a teenage boy ran after him and Haim pled and intervened and asked that he be allowed to coax his son back. And he told his son, it's better to die with your whole family. 
He asked for a time of prayer. After praying for the soldiers' repentance, he prayed for God's peace to be upon his family. He closed and he urged the soldiers to repent and trust in Christ. And at that point, the entire family was bludgeoned to death and dropped into a shallow grave. And so the question is, is is that victory? Is that actually being more than a conqueror? Well, Paul actually would say, yes, that is victory. That is being more than a conqueror. And so as we come to this this marvelous text, you have this, what really is one of the most glorious sections of all of God's holy word, verses 31 to 39. And and that text um, falls into two parts, and, and, and it, but they fit together beautifully. And so you have 31 to 34, which we won't look at this morning, and then 35 to 39. And Paul actually starts out in this section and he says, what shall we say to these things? Now, the, these things that Paul is referring to, commentators debate a little bit. Some say it's the these things of 29 and 30. Others say, no, that these things goes all the way back to chapter 5, 1 through this uh, present section. Uh, but even if we just take that little portion of, of 28 to 30, just think about these things. God promises to work all things out for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. God then turns around and, and, and says through the apostle that those whom he foreknew he predestined and uh, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his own son and those whom he predestined he called and those whom he called he justified and those whom he justified these he also glorified. And it's as if Paul takes that, as it were, that, that, that mother of all promises of 828 and then that golden chain of salvation. And he turns around and he says, what, what can we possibly say to these things? And then what he does is right after asking really, in a sense, that rhetorical question, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall be able to bring a charge against God's elect? Now what's interesting is that Paul asks these questions, but they're all really rhetorical questions. He never directly answers them, but in a very real sense, he answers them. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one condemning? And so here's the way that Paul, in a sense, indirectly answers those questions, because really... Are there those who are against us? Yes. Are there those who would try to bring a charge against God's elect? Yes. Are there there those who would seek to condemn or to judge us? And the answer is, of course. But but here's here's the, the bigger answer. If God is the one who justifies us, and only he can bring a charge that sticks, who else could bring a charge against us? If Jesus Christ is the one who who justified us by bearing our condemnation, and he is now the judge, 
Who else could possibly condemn us? And so in verses 31 to 34, you could say that that Paul focuses on the legal aspect, if you will, and he focuses on God's covenant obligations um, to his people in Jesus Christ. So who can bring a charge? Who can condemn us? Who can judge us? And the answer is, is, well, it's God that justifies. So in a real sense, nobody ultimately. And so 31 to 34, you could say something like this. I'm, I'm legally safe. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am legally safe because of the one who has justified me. But then you could, as you move into the next section, you could then ask something like this. But if, if the one who justifies me and, and, and makes me legally safe, the one who died for me, the one who was raised for me, the one who intercedes for me, he makes me safe, but... But what about the disposition of that one towards me, right? So I could say that I'm legally justified because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but but there's something else that, that actually might be nagging in the back of my mind, and that is, so if I'm justified... If Christ has died for me, was raised for me, if Christ intercedes for me, if if, if he's the one who who has borne my judgment, then how in the world do I make sense of suffering and trials and even persecution? I mean, at the end of the day, if, if we're going to boldly declare God is for me, then what do I make of it when it doesn't seem like he is for me? That great Reformed theologian Mark Twain one time said, uh, God would have more friends if he treated the ones that he already had a little better. And so what Paul does is Paul shifts from it as as it were the legal to, to now in a sense the relational, the personal. So the next question goes like this. Who will separate me from the love of Christ? Now that question is coordinate with the previous two questions. Who can be against me and who can bring a charge against me? That is who can condemn me? And now Paul's going to say, well, who actually can separate me from the love of Christ? And so as Paul asks that, as it were, that final question in verse 35a, he turns around and he gives a list of possible candidates of who could separate me from the love of Christ in verse 35b. Then what Paul's going to do is he's going to make a citation, a quotation from Psalm 44, and then he's going to affirm our total victory in Jesus Christ in verse 37. And so as you follow the, in a sense, the momentum of this text, John Murray notes, he says, he says, the notes of victory and assurance are now to reach their highest pitch. And so Paul takes these questions and now says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now this most certainly is going to be 
Christ's love for us, right? I don't think that Paul would actually say, who could separate us from our love for Christ, right? But the question is, who can separate us from Christ's love for us? At the end of the day, that's the most important question, right? And so the apostle who asks that question is the very same apostle who has said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so as Paul asks this question regarding the love of Christ, it is, it is the very love of Christ that causes the Son of God to give himself up for us. It is, it is that love that is profoundly personal. And so here's the apostle, Christ loved me. He gave himself up for me. It is that love of Christ, by the way, that Paul prays in Ephesians 3.19 that, that, that God would give us the ability to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Have you ever, you ever noted that as you've read that in Ephesians 3.19? That God would give you the ability to know that which surpasses knowledge. To know the unknowable. To, to, to fathom the unfathomable. There's a sense in which the love of Christ is so profoundly personal. He loved me, gave himself up for me. But then it is also something that is so spectacular that it goes beyond even our ability to fathom or to comprehend. You and I cannot comprehend the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of Christ for us. And so Paul says, I pray that you know what you really can't even fully comprehend. The love of Christ for you. Now, to be sure, Paul's going to refer to the love of God at the end of, the, of this section in 38 to 39. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, 35, he speaks of the love of Christ. 38 and 39, he speaks of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what it reflects is actually a unity between the Father and the Son in their love for their people. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. You know, the love of Christ is is so remarkable. The love of God for us in Christ is so remarkable. And there are so many hymns and songs that celebrate that love, right? Um, Here is love. Are we going to sing that today? Here is love. Here. Oh, good. That's, so Pastor Steve took my advice. That's great. Uh, this fathomless love. Uh, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. What wondrous love is this? Um, Jesus, lover of my soul. Love divine, all loves excelling. Oh, love that will not let me go. 
And then, of course, maybe the most wonderful of all, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. This love of Christ for us is is so amazing, it's so glorious, and and in a real sense, it is so staggering that it demands that it be expressed in song. Prose is wonderful, but there are times where it takes poetry and music to properly stir the soul with the magnitude of a truth that is beyond our comprehension. And so it is with the love of Christ. Now, I'm assuming that Trinity Bible Church has a patron saint, and that patron saint is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And so let me read to you from Spurgeon. This is a little long, but it is so good. He Spurgeon says, before we can have any right idea of the love of Jesus, we must understand his previous glory in its height of majesty and his incarnation upon the earth in all its depth of shame. But who can tell us the majesty of Christ? When he was enthroned in the highest heavens, he was very God of very God. By him were the heavens made and all the hosts thereof. His own mighty arm upheld the spheres. The praises of cherubim and seraphim perpetually surrounded him. The full chorus of the hallelujahs of the universe unceasingly flowed to the foot of his throne. He reigned supreme above all his creatures. God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Who can tell his height of glory then? And who, on the other hand can tell how low he descended. To be a man was something, but to be the man of sorrows was far more. To bleed and die and suffer, these were much for him who was the Son of God, but to suffer such unparalleled agony, to endure a death death of shame and desertion by his Father, this is a depth of condescending love which the most inspired mind must utterly fail to fathom. Herein is love. And truly it is a love that passes knowledge. And then Spurgeon closes and he says, Oh, let this love fill our hearts with adoring gratitude and lead us to practical manifestations of its power. And so when Paul talks about the love of Christ, he's not talking about some small thing. He's not talking about some insignificant thing. He's talking about something that is so magnificent. He's talking about the love of Christ that compelled the eternal majestic Son to humble himself in the incarnation. What love of Christ is demonstrated in the incarnation? He's talking about the love of Christ that in that moment of of, of agony in the garden, our Lord Jesus prays, not thy will, but thine be done. And there is, a, there is a sense in which that battle in Gethsemane, we can properly speak not only of an incarnate love, but we can also speak of a Gethsemane love. 
a love that caused the Lord Jesus to lay hold of that which was set before him, even though his own holy soul recoiled from the very thought of drinking that cup. You can also speak of the Calvary love that caused our Lord Jesus to to bear up that cross of shame, to carry it to to Golgotha's hill and to be crucified upon it and to be separated from His Father. What love is this? The love on Calvary that our Lord Jesus poured out upon us so that as he is, he is bearing our sins in his body on the tree, and he is bearing the wrath of God that we deserved as he stands in our place, is it any wonder that, only, that you could only simply say, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. And so Paul's question is this. What can separate us from that love? That that word separate that you see there, who who can divide us from him? Who can cause him to to leave us? Who could ever persuade him to depart from us? This very word is the word that our Lord Jesus uses in in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 9 where he says, um, what God has joined together, let no man separate, let no man put asunder. And so surely the love of Christ for us, for you, is so strong, so so omnipotent, so eternal, so unchanging, so sovereign, so faithful, and so infallible that nothing and no one can stand between you and the love that your Savior has for you. In fact, not even you can stand between your Savior's love for you. Because if it were possible for us, we would do it. By the way, that is the very reason why Paul at the end of this chapter says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth, then he says, nor any other created thing. So as long as you are in the category of a created thing, which is in fact your category, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so understand what Paul's doing. He says, if, if no one can bring a charge against you and no one can condemn you, then who or what could possibly 
get between you and your Savior, who or what could ever divide you from His love for you? And then Paul is going to actually give a list of candidates. Now, we already know the answer. The answer is is nothing. No one can separate us from the love of Christ, but he's going to give a list of possible candidates. And he starts with tribulation. Can tribulation... By the way, common word for the trouble that inflicts distress upon us. Sometimes the word is is translated affliction. It's that which is brought about by outward circumstances or hardships or or sufferings. And so can that, or, or then what about distress? Distress is actually the idea of, of being restricted or narrowed. It's to, be, it's to be pressed in by stressful circumstances. Very close to the idea of tribulation, but the idea is, is an inner anguish from being squeezed. And, and here's the answer. No amount of distress, no amount of affliction, no amount of stress, trouble, or anguish can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Why is that important? Because there may be times where you experience tribulation, you experience anguish, and there are times where in our weakness we may cry out, God, where are you? And the answer is, I am where I've always been. And Christ could turn around, I am where I've always been. Your advocate, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. I haven't changed and my love for you has not changed. No amount of distress, no amount of affliction can actually change or even put a dent in the love of Christ for us. What about persecution? Acts 8.1, that very day, the church began to suffer a cruel persecution. That's right after the stoning of, of Stephen. And the idea is to be, is to be oppressed, to be, to be chased down, pursued uh, because of one's faith. You and I, we don't, we don't experience the kind of things that the Haim family experienced, but... I would just remind all of us that things are probably not going to get easier for us as Christians. In fact, there may be an increased cost of being a follower of Jesus. Even in this great country of freedom and liberty that we have enjoyed the fact is, is that those liberties and freedoms may actually erode before our very eyes and it may cost us something. Will persecution separate us? Absolutely not. Paul then says famine and nakedness. And so the idea of hunger or famine uh, and nakedness is to be without adequate food, without adequate clothing. The idea is, is to be destitute. 
And so the apostle actually understood this personally. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he said he talks about um, in hard work and toil through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food, in cold and without enough clothing. What about danger? That is, your life is at risk. Paul says in the very verse before that in 2 Corinthians 11, I've been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own countrymen, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at sea, in dangers from false brothers. And so Paul says that even even when your life is hanging by a thread and even when your life is at great risk and even when you're suffering destitution or deprivation, not even those things separate you from the love of Christ. He mentions one last one, and that is the sword, which, of course, is a metaphor for violent death. The result of persecution, the final result of persecution. It's the final result of living a life that's in danger. And so Paul gives this list of of potential candidates. And then he turns around and he does something really interesting. He says, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, if, if you notice, this is actually a quotation from Psalm 44. And I'm not going to expound Psalm 44, but but there's an important reason why the apostle actually quotes this text, all right? And so, as Paul quotes Psalm 44, he has this verse. But as, as you look at Psalm 44, what you realize is that Psalm 44 um, is, is, first of all, it starts with this celebration of a glorious past as being the people of God. God's done this for us. God's done that for us. And so it's a celebration of their past. But that's 1 through 8. But then the psalmist in verses 9 through 18 starts to lament what seems to be God's rejection of them. All right? So follow the, the flow of thought. God's done all these wonderful, redemptive, glorious things for us in the past, but now it looks like God's rejecting us. And in fact, in that section, 9 through 16, their suffering, they look at it as God's doing. Now, here's, here's the interesting part, and I'll just read this to you. Because there's something more than just the suffering they are, they're agonizing over something in this psalm. Verse 17 says, All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps deviated from your path. Yet you've crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. 
And so there is this, there is this in, incredible anguish in this passage that basically goes like this. God, it seems like you've forsaken us. It seems like you've rejected us. Now, if we had done something to provoke you to anger and to judgment, then we could understand that. But, but there's nothing that we can think of that has marked the departure of us from you, it seems that you have departed from us. And then the psalmist says, and this is the text that Paul quotes, verse 22, but for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for slaughter. Now notice what the psalmist does. He then prays. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up and be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. In a very real sense, the suffering that they are enduring, whether it was the people of God of old in Psalm 44 or Christians under the new covenant, the suffering that we endure is not punishment, but it's the battle scars of our faith. And as Psalm 44 ends on a plea for, for redemption based on God's covenant love, the very point that the, that the psalmist is, leaves unsaid, Paul explicitly tells us. So the point of the psalm quotation is simply this, that tribulation and persecution have always been the lot of God's people. Okay. You do understand that, that we're the anomaly. We're the anomaly. The vast majority of God's people throughout the last 2,000 years, the vast majority of God's people in the world right now actually suffer for the sake of the gospel and endure tribulation for the sake of Christ. We're the ones that, 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 that seem to be out of the mainstream, and, and that's God's kindness, that's God's blessing. Don't want to take anything away from the, the liberty and the protections that we've had being here. But just understand this, we're the anomalies. The lot of God's people, old covenant or new covenant, has been to suffer, to be sheep led to the slaughter. And so what's left unsaid in the psalm, but only pled for, God redeem us, show us your covenant love, is made explicit by Paul when Paul turns around and says right after quoting Psalm 44, he says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Notice that, that, that magnificent little adversative conjunction, but. Absolutely magnificent, right? And so Paul goes from affliction, turmoil, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. For your sake we're put to death all day long. But in all of these things, we super conquer. In all of these things, the very things that look like defeat, 
the very things that look like God is abandoning His people, the very thing which makes God's people look like losers, look like they've been discarded, unloved, and uncared for. Paul says in all of those things that from the world's perspective look so terrible, in all of those things we conquer, but not just conquer. So you, you, you know that it's a famous Greek word. The word for conquer is the word nikao. That's the verb. The, the noun form is nike, um, which now is marketed as a swoosh on the side of a Nike tennis shoe, all right? But that verb, nikao, Paul takes that word to conquer, to be victorious, and then he adds a prepositional prefix to it, which means, which, which makes it above or beyond. And so the idea is you super conquer through him who loved you. You prevail completely. You are completely and overwhelmingly victorious, even though it doesn't look like it. Some of the translations capture this in, in different ways. The Old King James, NIV, and, and the ESV were more than conquerors. New American Standard, we overwhelmingly conquer. New English translation, we have complete victory. And then notice it's this, this language that through him who loved us. You don't conquer just because you're determined. And you don't conquer just because you served in the Marine Corps. You don't conquer because you're strong. In fact, the only way that God's people super conquer is not through any courage or, uh, or, or endurance or determination of our own, but it is only through Jesus Christ. You know, at the end of the day, you know what ultimately matters? What ultimately matters is not the strength of your hold on Him, but the strength of His hold on you. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him, and notice this, who loved us. So I tell our congregation all the time that that you need, to, you need to love grammar, okay? Now, I, I, think, I think it's possible to get to heaven without loving grammar, but I don't know exactly how. But you pay attention to verb tenses. You pay attention to prepositions. The world turns on prepositions, by the way. God inspires not only the words, but the grammar. And notice this, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him, right? So it's only through Christ. And then notice his language. Who loved us? Why not who loves us? Doesn't he love us right now? Does Jesus actually love us right now? This very moment. The answer is yes. He's interceding for us right now. But Paul chooses a past tense verb here to emphasize something, not Christ's current ongoing love for us, which results in his intercession for us, but rather loved us points to a historic act 
of Him loving us, which of course is His Calvary love. Christ loved me and gave Himself up for me. So the very love that manifested itself for estranged enemies, Romans 5, 8, the very love that God demonstrates for the helpless and for the hopeless, it is through that love of Jesus Christ who loved me in His suffering, in His bleeding, and in His dying. It is in that love that we super conquer through suffering and even death. In 2015, 21 Coptic Christians, that is Christians from Ethiopia, dressed in orange jumpsuits, were led by masked ISIS devils along a beach in Libya, and they were all made to kneel. Some just, you could see their lips moving, just quietly praying. Others just heads bowed. Others looked terrified. And as all 21 Coptic Christians knelt on that beach, they were beheaded because of their love for Christ. You might remember it wasn't that many years ago that, that Assyrian Christians in Mosul, right? So, by the way, think of this. You've had Syrian Christians in the ancient city of Mosul for 1,800 years. 1,800-year Christian presence. And those Assyrian Christians suffered under ISIS, and each one of them in the city of Mosul were given an ultimatum. You embrace Islam or you face the sword. ISIS comes in and levels Mosul, and ISIS goes through, and you might remember this. They paint an Arabic noon for Nasara on the doors of known Christians. Nasara means Christian in Arabic. 100,000 Christians fled Mosul. And nobody knows exactly how many were killed. Sheep led to the slaughter. All day long killed for his sake. Destitute, persecuted, but not forsaken. You see, in God's economy, things are not as they appear. What looks like defeat because you are prevailed uh, uh, over by an enemy, what looks like defeat is from, from God's perspective, it is victory. And so these who have laid down their lives overwhelmingly conquer through the one who loved them and gave themselves up for them. And so they died in faith. They died confessing Christ. And they conquered though they died. As one writer says, just as Jesus suffered and triumphed, so too will 
believers. So child of God, hear God's word to you this morning. How many commands do you see in this text? What are you supposed to do? The answer is there are no commands in this text. What action are you supposed to take? Well, there's, there's no action item given to you. But what the text tells us is that things happen to us. Distress and tribulation and suffering and and, and even persecution and death. But the reality is is that whatever you're you're going through, whether whether it is the ordinary sufferings of life, the ordinary tribulations of life, just the hardships of the circumstances of life, Whatever the degree is, whatever the manifestation of it is, here is is the glorious truth. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Maybe you're suffering in in a difficult, difficult marriage. Maybe your, your heart is breaking over a wayward kid. Maybe you are distressed over... Things that are just simply outside of your control. And what the word of God says to you this morning is this. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And in fact, in the very thing that seems to be so heavy and seems to be so overwhelming, in that very thing, you will in fact overwhelmingly conquer. That doesn't mean that you're going to find an escape hatch from the distress. Maybe God will provide one. Maybe not. You may find escape from the sword. Maybe not. Maybe you will. But regardless of what the outcome is of any of these things, you will totally triumph. You will prove to be a super conqueror through the unchanging, sovereign, eternal love of Christ. So in my darkest hour, in humiliation, I will wait for you. I am not forsaken. Though I lose my life, though my breath be taken, I will wait for you. I am not forsaken. One thing I desire, to see you in your beauty. You are my delight. You are my glory. You my sacrifice. Your love is all-consuming. You are my delight. You are my glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love which he has demonstrated to us, especially when he gave himself up for us on Calvary's tree. And Father, even as we come to the table, we pray that our own hearts would be filled with wonder and love and praise at such wondrous love poured out on us. And so, Father, we pray for those who are suffering. We pray for those who are going through affliction. We think of brothers and sisters throughout this world who are experiencing persecution, famine, nakedness, and sword. And, Father, we pray that you would remind us that whatever our trial, whatever our circumstance, 
that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Let's all stand.